0: Hi, everybody. This is Scott Today, I have a repeat guest. Michael Malice has returned. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing outstanding. Uh, Okay, first, I should warn people that uh, I returned from a trip to Florida. And as often happens, when you return from a trip, you're on a plane, you catch a cold. So I hope that if I end up coughing, it won't ruin the experience for everybody. Uh, Okay, Michael, so let me just uh, introduce some of, uh, you know, your uh, your bio, and then we'll get going. So bear with me. So you are the host of the widely popular podcast, You're Welcome, Y-O-U-R, author of Dear Reader, The Unauthor- Unauthorized Autobiography of Kim Jong II, The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics, The Anarchist Handbook, and your most recent book, which just came out, which we'll spend much time talking about today, The White Pill. Tale of good and evil. Did I cover Wait, all of the important you, things we need to cover? You don't know who Kim Jong il is? <laughs> I do know who he
1: is. You just said Kim Jong the second. It's Kim Jong il. Kim.
0: Forgive me. That explains why I am sick right now. And as I as I read the second, I said, that's that sounds wrong. But thank you for being so gracious as to point out my blatant. Stupidity. I appreciate that. No, I I obviously have a very
1: high opinion of your intelligence. So when you when something like that ha- like I was just on Glenn Beck's show and he had never heard of Camus and I I just I I thought there was some kind of and in th- that case he hadn't heard of Camus but in this case I'm glad to see that you just misread
0: something. Well, I will return the uh, the pointing out an error uh, as a French speaker, it's Camus. Oh, okay. There see- you. There you go, Camus, Albert Camus. Uh, Albert right. Camus is <laughs> mort. All right, so what's new? I think our last chat, Michael, was in June 2022, so let's call it eight, nine months ago. Before we get into the book, what's been new with you? How have you felt about being in Austin? Give us an update on your personal or professional life.
1: Well, I mean getting this baby out of me was obviously the biggest one because I was working on this book for two years. But I am just I'll tell you a good thing about uh, um, living in Austin. Tim Poole had put up a billboard of me in Times Square. I'd been a lifelong New York City resident. And I'm like, all right, I have to go and to see this in person. This is one of those once in a lifetime, amazing things. Um, and let me tell you, as hideous as I am, in uh, real life, it's, it's seeing myself billboard size is even more terrifying. It's the people are fleeing like it was Godzilla. And I was so angered by how new, little New York had changed in the year since I'd left. Uh, COVID had receded. So you would think, OK, there's going to be some healing. I remember very vividly, of course, after 9-11, you know, that devastation. But then, you know, slowly but steadily, we recovered and we were all excited to recover. Like, we're going to show them you can't beat New York. And the energy was not that the energy was like, all right, it's a wrap. I think there was something like probably, I'd say, 20, let's be conservative. 20% of the storefronts were unoccupied, which in my lifetime is just unheard of. I'm like, this must have been what it looked like in the Great Depression. And as I've said this on many other shows, the stores that didn't survive were the ones that were special and unique. So CVS is fine. You know, Target is fine. The supermarkets are fine and, you know, Best Buy. But, you know, all those little restaurants and things that gave it character and and why you'd get on a plane to visit New York, they're all gone. So I am uh, I was very, very angry uh, um, by what they had done to my beloved city. And I'm very, very pleased being in Austin. More and more people, hopefully, including yourself, are moving here every month. Um, I I just and it's just fun networking. And because there's so many um, what used to make New York wonderful was that Venn diagram. Because you'd have the business people and then you have the arts people and the hipsters and the movie people and the theater people and in publishing and everyone's intermingling and you're when you never know who you're going to meet in an event and they're going to be exciting. And there's a bit of that coming here, which I'm very glad to be part of.
0: Are you still? Uh, I know that I, I mean, both privately and I think the first time that you appear on the show, we talked about the these uh, soirees that you put together. Have you have you continued that tradition? And if so, what are some of the folks that you've had since the last time that we've spoken?
1: Oh, yeah. So uh, what, what God's referring to is I kind of patterned my living space after Gertrude Stein because she had these salons in her home on the Rue de Fleureau, maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong, <laughs> in the West Bank of Paris because she was the first kind of, uh, it was basically effectively the first modern art museum. They had this little kind of room and everyone come by and look at all the pictures. This is before there were movies, so people just have to look at paintings all day. And, you know, everyone who was there just got to meet one another and have this great cross-pollination. So, yes, I've been, I, I have it decorated like her. I have all these cool, uh, you'll see when you come over, all these cool pieces up in my house. I just recently acquired, um, two, I, when, when it's expensive, it's acquired. See, when it's cheap, you buy it. When it's expensive, you acquire it. Very nice. I acquired two pieces of art that were drawn by Edie Sedgwick, who was Andy Warhol's muse, uh, which wow. is kind of unheard of. Um, she died at a very young age. And her were after 50 years, put him up for auction. Um, so yeah, it's it's been, I had Kennedy over here, uh, who's the host on um, yeah. uh, Fox Business. I threw her a little event. Uh, Corey DeAngelis is another one. He's a big person when it comes to school choice here in the state. So it, it's been just really a wonderful uh, um,
0: uh, scene. Maybe small, I, I don't know if you know this little factoid, but uh, I, K- Kennedy was on M. Uh, MTV, correct.
1: Alternative Nation, yes. It's right, the same person, yeah.
0: Right. So, uh, do you know who John Roberts is? No, no, I, no. John Roberts, I, I think that's his name. He's he's a you know a very res- respected uh, anchor or correspondent. Well, I don't know what the exact title is on Fox. Well, you can do searches on John Roberts in the early '80s. He was at the he was a host at the equivalent of mtv which was which is in canada is called much music yeah and he had he had the oh you, you do you know that show you, you know that- I, yeah i i know i know way more about canadian television than an american
1: should i've seen every season of top chef canada <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, Project Runway Canada and and uh, uh, Canada's Drag Race, yes, and and oh. also Kenny versus Spenny. I've seen every episode twice. Oh, and, and Degrassi, starting from Kids of Degrassi, which was on seventy eight. I think I had all the DVDs. Oh, what 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 led to that Canadian uh, love
0: affair? What, what because
1: uh, being a hipster, it's like a school play version of American television. So everything is just a little crappier, and the budgets are less, and well, the sets are you. really obvious. Thank but you, they're sir. trying. They've got that school spirit, so they. They want to make it but it's like we don't got the budget so it's like so it's like uh, um you know the the guests the judges on top chef canada are like you know people you've never they're, oh they're going to these amazing restaurants in toronto and it's like it's not the same
0: got you okay so let's move to the white pill and I'm, I'm gonna ask you although i mean i think many of our listeners here will know blue pill red pill black pill white pill i'll ask you to explain it, but before we do that there is a conspicuous uh, cover of the book uh, behind you. Uh, I think it has four ladies. Can you maybe describe why you picked those four ladies and how that fits the theme of the book?
1: Sure. It's actually that. So that my friends who live across the way from here, the Taylors, they threw me a book release party, uh, which was very nice. And when I walked in, that was there. So I'm I, i they, I'm like, can I steal this? They said, of course. And it was actually very fun. So, you know, as you know, I, I like to troll people on Twitter. It's a way of entertainment. And I said, all right, let me uh, do a reading, you know, and I didn't know I'd say 80 percent of the people there. And I read the the chapter from American Psycho called Killing Child at Zoo. And the, the chapter is about I don't know if you've, have you have read the book. No, it's very different from the movie. It's much, much darker. It's, it's I mean, it's really very meant to be just extremely disturbing. And in this scene, he's at the Central Park Zoo. And there's the penguin exhibit and there's this little kid and he calls the kid over and he takes out a stiletto from his pocket and puts it in the kid's ear and then drags the kid behind a garbage can. And then watches the mom thinking the kid's playing hide and seek. Then she sees the kid is bleeding out and is screaming. And then he says, I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor. And he makes sure that the kid, di- the, and he refers to the kid as it, make sure the kid dies. And then he leaves worried to make sure his suit doesn't get blood on it. And I thought given the extreme nature of this, Uh, a reading that people would understand this is from American Psycho or, you know, some other crazy book. And they're just staring at me. So I had to say, okay, this is from a book much better than mine called American Psycho. But if you don't (laughs) want to read that one, you can read The White Pill. So what I'm going to, I didn't, I didn't want to reveal this, but since you asked directly, I have to. Okay. What I realized while writing the book is that four of the main characters correspond to the four quadrants in the political compass. So the political compass is right versus left and then authoritarian versus libertarian. So right authoritarian at the upper right would be Margaret Thatcher, who's at the top there. Uh, left authoritarian, um, which is uh, Elena Ceausescu, who's at the bottom in hell. Uh, right libertarian is Ayn Rand on the right in the picture. And left libertarian is Emma Goldman, who is on the left in the picture. So the I, I also wanted the cover um, to be as... Uh, uh, maybe frivolous, I don't know if frivolous is the word, but light. And it, it looks like a 1970s, like romance novel paperback, right? Because I wanted the point to be uh, how evil isn't coming in, having a big banner that says I'm evil. Right. Uh, it, it's it's going to come in as, you know, that um, uh, administrator at the hospital who won't let you talk to your family simply because they have the power to tell you no. It's these little, you know, the the kind of banality of evil, as Hannah Arendt calls it. I'm not sure if she's using the term in the same way I just used it, but in that sense. So uh, I wanted it to kind of pop uh, and, you know, it looks kind of girly and you wouldn't know underneath that you're talking about, you know, starving children, genocide and the worst abuses, you know, humanity has seen.
0: So choosing uh, female exemplars of each of the instantiations of that, that different quadrant it's part of what you would have called girly is that i mean is that is that the only reason why you chose female versions rather than you know mix it up and so on
1: well that's not the only reason it's also that uh, um, three of the four were really kind of the warriors in this book uh who were taking on the depravity of the soviet union uh so you know i wanted to put them front and center and give them their due
0: very nice okay so let's talk let's do the uh, explain to our viewers who may not know these terms you know red pill blue pill black pill white pill and i don't know if you you're you're prepared to answer this this question what is the etymology of these i mean you could explain what they represent but why are they called that? Maybe you can tell us that as well. Red
1: pill, blue pill comes from the Matrix. I oh. don't know where white pill and black pill comes from. And until you just put me on the spot, I never even thought to look it up. So if that's all okay, right, good. You would, th- you would think. If I spent two years writing this book, I would be like, hey, where's this coming? It's going to be some kind of weird Nazi reference, right? Like, I, right. I just, I, I, now that it's on the cover and it's been out, well, I, I could, it, probably... could it
0: Could it simply be that, you know, that white pill to the extent that, I mean, you're going to explain it, it relates to hope and optimism that, you know, somehow white is the light of day, black pill is, is darkness, it's obscure. I mean, could, could oh, it be? Oh, no, something?
1: I'm sure. But it, I, I mean, it was very possible that the person who coined this term is just a nefarious oh, character. Oh, it's a bad
0: person. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, you know. so go, take it away.
1: Because uh, cause I remembered in 2020 um, when you had the rioting and President Trump had said, um, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, meaning we have to restore law and order. And the corporate press was like, oh, this was a quote from this racist mayor in Florida that you're, and he's like, no one had heard of this guy. Like the idea that Trump had this like severe knowledge of his history that he knows these obscure people who said these things as opposed to it sounds nice because it rhymes. Anyway, so- The blue, what drives me crazy is online when people are like, oh, there's too many pills. I can't handle it. I'm like, you can't count to four. (laughs) And I'm like, so when you see a traffic light, do you just like shit your pants? And you're like, oh, my God, three colors. I don't know what to do. This one's blinking now. Well, Panic, panic, panic. So the red pill in the Matrix uh, and blue pill are from the Matrix. Curtis Yarvin is the one. There's argument whether it was Curtis Yarvin or whether this comes out of like um, men's rights activism. But the premise of the red pill is that which is presented as truth by the corporate press is in reality a carefully constructed narrative designed to keep some very unpleasant people in power.
0: So if I've taken the red pill, I, I am aware of what you just said. Yes. And right. and I you understand
1: that the people on the screens have an agenda and they're often being disingenuous and dishonest intentionally. It's not... Oh, they make mistakes sometimes it's that they are lying by omission or lying by intent the blue pill is everyone's trying to do their best in positions of power sure they make mistakes but they try to rectify those mistakes and you should question it within a point but basically we are you know we're doing the best we can with what we have and these people are better you know more or less
0: good intentioned and are honest workers um, but sorry, before you go on, so for better or worse, I mean, until I had heard you explain some of these distinctions, my understanding of blue pill and red pill, you'll tell me how much it maps into what you're saying. When someone has been red pilled, it, it almost is synonymous with they've been de you know, I've been red pilled. Whereas, if you're in blue pill world, you're you know you're kind of a blue haired Taliban. Is there a mapping here, or that's, that's no?
1: That is inaccurate because that implies that red pilled has something to do with uh, being right wing or non left wing. And in fact, it's very easy to be a blue pilled Republican. Uh, these kind of boomer conservatives who think that if you sit down and you know once we beat Pelosi, we're going to save this country. Or if I just go around and telling, start telling the kids about the Constitution and to watch Sean Hannity, that this is going to turn the ship around. I mean, in my opinion, they're completely delusional. But even if they're not delusional, they're certainly blue pill. They're just repeating the mantras of uh, um, you know conservative propaganda that's on their screens, uh, and they did not have understanding that at the very, at the very. Base they maybe they have this vaguely, but they don't have a conscious understanding that Mitch McConnell will always be closer to Hillary Clinton than he will be to me or you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, when you put it like that, it's not really a controversial statement. But their brains don't work like that. They really think these two parties hate each other, and, and so on and so forth. Gotcha. Um, the the black pill is the concept, which is very prevalent in in right of center circles, that uh, it's a wrap. That the people who uh, they are opposed to are both have been at it too long, are too powerful. Uh, the the, trage- the trajectories and the trends are irreversible. Um, and anyone who is feeding you optimism and/or hope is either delusional or lying for self promotion or, or something to that effect. Um, and it's it's uh, and y- the, the I think just in general outside of a political context this is really the most pernicious kind of person. Because if there's someone around you in any context who's telling you, you shouldn't have hope, well, what good are you, right? Like, right. What's, the, what's the point of anything? The white pill, uh, I wanna, I, I, in my concept of the term, I wanna be very specific. It is hope, it is not necessarily optimism. Because optimism means, oh, you know, if I'm playing roulette, odds are that, you know, the odds are in my favor. I don't think that's what the white pill is, because a lot of times the odds are most definitely against you. As I demonstrate in this book, they were taking on, you know, this empire that stretched across the globe. The odds were not in their favor. They, you know, the Soviet Union had been around for decades. They were not weak. They were weak in certain contexts. But, you know, this is not a paper tiger necessarily. And they were certainly willing to use the most extreme forms of authoritarianism to maintain and control their power and hegemony. But still, they lost. So hope is seeing the possibility uh, that it is not at all a given that one's opponents are going to have victory.
0: Got you. Uh, I mean, I'm, interested. I'm, 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 I'm happy that you mentioned hope. I mean, to link it to some of my own work in uh, my 2011 book, The Consuming Instinct, I have a chapter, I think it was chapter eight called uh, Marketing Hope by Selling Lies. In that case, what I was doing is arguing that there are many peddlers of hope that are successful precisely because they cater to our Darwinian-based insecurities. So, you know, some of the most successful books uh, that one can ever write are self-help books. You know, how to make love to to the same woman twenty thousand times and give her an yeah. orgasm every time. Well, that's pure bullshit, but at least it gives me hope that I can truly be a a, a winner in the bedroom. H- how to reverse aging? How to win? Right. So, all of these have how to. Uh, you know, uh, prescriptions precisely because they are catering to my insecurities. Okay. Uh, and in many cases, they're peddling false hope. So that's kind of the negative, the, the nefarious elements of selling hope. But on the other hand, in my forthcoming book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, which will be out in, in July, f- forgive the shameless plug on my own show. Uh, I open up the 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 book with a exchange. I don't know if you remember it, Michael, in uh, Shawshank Redemption, where Andy... Have you seen it or you haven't seen it? No, I have not seen it. Oh, please. When we when we finish this chat today, just rent it. Do something. It's one of the greatest movies ever. It's basically... It's,
1: <laughs> rent it. Grandpa, it's 2023. You don't rent movies. Or,
0: oh, well, th- thank you very much for again uh, uh, humiliating it. me. I'll about. go to Blockbuster. You know, it's funny. Uh, so one day I was talking about how men and women engage in sexual si- signaling. And I said, this was maybe five... 5 7 years ago and this was in a class in a lecture and i said you know this is what men and women do in a discotheque and so the, the entire class cracked up i said what what what's so funny they said oh, sir we don't call them discotheques they're called nightclubs and so so that that was uh, sufficiently humiliating that i've learned my lesson so thank you for correcting me there we don't rent them anymore got you uh so anyway so in in that in that uh, exchange uh, Andy Dufresne that that's the name of the character uh, of uh, uh, the main actor he's wrongly convicted of having murdered his wife and now he's in prison for a very long uh, prison sentence and he's talking to uh, Morgan Freeman who's a guy who's incarcerated for 40 50 years and they're discussing whether it is a good thing to have hope in prison or not and Morgan Freeman is saying hope will kill you in here you shouldn't have hope whereas the other guy is saying you know if i don't have hope i'm basically dead so so maybe tell me more what, what what do you do you think that void of someone having hope when they wake up every morning ultimately they're existentially dead i mean how can you go on every day facing all the trials and tribulations if you don't have hope correct
1: and and the worst thing about that is it's very important for you to make sure everyone around you is hopeless because if there's one counter Counter narrative, your whole thesis is collapsed, right? As long as there's one time when the hope paid off, this whole sense of hopelessness has been uh, rendered uh, false. So, this is why I think they're just completely uh, like nasty and pernicious people. And, you know, this is the one quality, that and cynicism, which is very closely related, that I kind of select against in my social group because I think it's just uh just absolutely just malevolent and then very pernicious in its malevolence as well
0: now you i if i remember correctly i when i was going you know quickly going through your book uh the your uh, you have an opening quote I, I i can't remember if it was an epigraph by albert camus who who is an existentialist No, he was. not He hated that. He was was anti. Okay, so who was the? Oh, sorry, sorry. Jean Jean Paul Sartre was the existentialist, correct? Yes, yes. Yes, yes. yes. Okay, exactly. So, so what is what is the link, if any, between existentialism uh, and uh, you know your position on the white pill, you know, and hope, you know, being hopeful and so on.
1: Well, again, so Camus and Sartre were often linked together and they had a very in, uh, intense relationship and Camus was often called an existentialist. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not an existentialist. I'm an absurdist. Right. But I mean, this is a very academic distinction. I, I mean, his his philosophy is very, very close to existentialism. It's like how Ayn Rand said she's not a libertarian. She's an objectivist. And it's like, OK, like like literally every libertarian I, a philosophy you agree with. So it's just kind of, you know, this kind of spurious categorization. But uh, Camus felt that life was meaningless, right? This is, this is kind of one of the central existential premises. But for him, this was uh, not something to fear or revile. And if anything, it's kind of, a, you don't really get to choose. If that's the status, that's the reality, that's the reality. But for him, this was an opportunity because what he regarded, uh, you know, man being this kind of figure in this like absurd, meaningless world, that this is a great opportunity. Um, you know, the 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 way I understand Camus' philosophy uh, and, and, you know, is this analogy I always use is you go into, let's suppose you and I walk to some beautiful mountainside and we come across an easel, you know, with a canvas on it. And there's, at, you know, at least two types of people. One will be like, what is this doing here? This is stupid. Or then it's like, wait a minute, what a great opportunity. This is a blank canvas. I can paint whatever I want. Right. I can paint this mountainside. I can paint my friend. I can paint something abstract. I can make what I want with it and I can create things that are truly beautiful and permanent and and, and imbue meaning into it. Um, so I think that approach is something that speaks very much to me. And I think that also speaks to his view to the essential need of conscience, uh, uh, having a conscious, meaning, I, I just pronounced that word wrong. When you die, you know, you're only accountable to yourself. He was an atheist, uh, which is, you know, kind of a secondary issue. But point being, this is your one shot. You can be the kind of person that you want to be, or at least strive in that direction. And don't you want to be a good person? Don't you want to look yourself in the mirror and and maybe not pat yourself on the back, but be like, you know what? I've messed up, I've made mistakes, but I, I've tried to the best of my ability to move the needle in a positive direction. And that quote from the beginning of the book, I don't have it exactly off the top of my head, uh, is to the, the verbiage exactly right, but he says, uh, in this world, there are plagues and there are victims, and it is up to all of us insofar as possible not to be on the side of the plagues. And you know, when you put it that way, I think you know, morality and moral philosophy is obviously a very complicated, tendentious issue that's been debated for centuries, but I do think that in many, many cases, most people know what the right thing to do is. And it's very easy to kind of be uh, morally lazy and look the other way. And he challenges us to be like, no, 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 do the right, you know, that quote, do the right thing, though the heavens may fall. Um, so I think that very much speaks to his worldview. And I try to follow in those footsteps as much as uh, um, I possibly can. Gotcha. Now, in, in,
0: in talking, so I'm I'm going to try to link, uh, you know, the the idea of, you know, taking the white pill with some of my own work. So as you know, Michael, I think when I came on your show, we discussed evolutionary psychology and so on. And of course, one of the things that keeps recurring in whenever one is talking about human nature is the, the old you know, nature versus nurture debate, which of course is a, a bit of a, a erroneous, well, it's very much of an erroneous dichotomy in that much of who we are is an inextricable, you know, melange of our nature and our nurture. Very few things are strictly nature. Very few things are strictly nurture. The only question is how much yep. each of these two mechanisms contribute to my personhood and yours. So now let me link that to the sort of white pill and and, and hope. Now, in, in, at the start of you know, my next book, I talk about the fact that, you know, the research shows that when it comes to happiness in general, but we could apply the same argument for hope in particular, when it comes to happiness, about 50% of the variance across individual you know, people in terms of their happiness is just their disposition. I'm, you know, I'm a I'm a sunny disposition kind of guy and, you know, maybe Michael is or isn't. But then the good news is that there's another 50% that is open to, you know, my willful contributing to it, right? You know, I could adopt mindsets. I could take certain decisions that either increase the likelihood of my being happy or being more miserable. So when one says, you know, taking, if, if you say, you know, I'm going to take the, the white pill, that ascribes agency. I can change my score on, on on you know how hopeful I am. So are you arguing that largely how hopeful we are, or to use your earlier example with the easel, how hopeful we are is largely driven by our personal volition? Or do you concede that there is individual differences that, that ultimately can't be changed? Some of us are just in- inherently hopeful, whereas others think that the world is bleak and disgusting.
1: We can't all be great people, but we can all be better people. We can't all be happy people, but we could all be happier people. And I'll give you an example of my own personal life. I had a friend, a fan, excuse me, I have friends now who I started talking to and he had revealed this is going to get really dark, really quick. And he had revealed to me he had suicidal ideation and he had just recently tried. He was committed and, and he was still in this very dark place. And I worked with him. And my goal is let's get you to depressed because when you're if you're depressed you can handle the press then then you're not a concern and i got him to depressed and now he's actually thriving and you know because he grew up you know he's he's uh you know got got a great career i don't want to get too personal with his details point being you know when i another great example is you know when i first started exercising you know you think oh i'm never going to look like these people in the magazines you don't have to but you could certainly look better right you lost a lot of weight you're not going to look like arnold schwarzenegger who cares you're still a lot healthier now you're a lot look feel a lot better look a lot better move a lot better it, it's, so when you put it in those terms uh um another example i use which speaks to the Camus idea is you know I, i've given talks about networking several times and i said if some you know if i see someone who's in town and it's their birthday I take them out and I do it for me and everyone laughs and I go, the guy who takes people out for their birthday is awesome. That could be you. The only thing costing you is what an hour and a half and like 40 bucks for dinner. And then you could be like, I'm that guy and he's awesome. I want to be friends with the guy who takes people out for their birthday. Right. So it is so much easier. And because I despise our I think it might be even worse than Canada in Canada, how our culture is driven by cynicism. It is the opportunities to improve both yourself and the world are infinite, and they're really not that hard. Um, and it could be just as simple as calling a friend you haven't talked to in a long time and catching up and making their day brighter. And that in and of itself, to me, is, all right, I've done something productive today. I've kind of, you know, nudged the world. In, in a better direction. So uh I do agree with you that obviously, just as a you know, very obvious example, there are people who have biological tendencies toward depression, right? So maybe they're not gonna ever be this kind of uh chipper sunny, like Mormon from Utah, you know, where they're just always happy. But they certainly and, and people are genetically predisposed to being obese, right? Because maybe they come from a fat family, they have those habits, but just because you you don't have to be. Slim, But if you're 350, you could certainly be 250, right? You have that capacity. And in terms of health, that's enormous move forward. And that's enormous sense of control over your position. So to me, that's what hope means. It's not necessarily utopian at all, because that's an absurdity, but it's certainly the capacity of knowing that. And here's the other thing for Cam- Camus also had this quick quote about how maybe it's not about the happy ending maybe it's about the journey right Mm -hmm. so as an example of losing weight it's difficult for very many people there's a lot of different kinds of information well that could be kind of fun also maybe you're sure it's frustrating let me try this for x amount of months then let me try this let me figure out how my body's responding to different things and even if you're not uh, um getting to your goal at the very least you're learning about yourself in the process and that in and of itself is something exciting and wonderful
0: you know uh, as as you were speaking uh, about hope i i thought i i'm I wonder if that's been already studied it wouldn't take much for us to find out uh whether you know my how how much I score on you know my hopeful disposition how much that correlates with openness to new experiences as per the big five and I would think that they would be correlated and th- let yes. me it, it, do you know that for a fact or you I just... don't
1: know for a fact but like logically it just seems almost a certainty it, exactly
0: opinion. because i would I'm, I'm I'm personalizing it to myself I think i'm I'm a very hopeful person in that I wouldn't be taking on all of the fights that I take on if I didn't think that in whatever small way I can contribute to improving things, exactly in how you said, it might not be a gargantuan improvement, but I can certainly weigh in on things so that someone can write to me and say, hey, you know, I, I've benefited from whatever you, and I say, hey, I've done my job, right? I, I, I've left the beach a bit less cluttered or yep. littered than, than before I left. But now let's link it to kind of being o- open to the world, So in in my next book, I talk about, uh, you know, know, uh, life as a playground. So I have a whole chapter that, you know, even very serious things like doing scientific research is a form of play. It's intellectual play, right? Uh, Even in the most dire of circumstances, me going through the Lebanese Civil War or even holocaust children wanted to instantiate their deep need to play right life is beautiful the movie was about the father trying to you know protect his son from the horrors of the concentration camps by turning it into a game and so i want to link hope and openness uh, to a story that just happened to me and if the gentleman ends up watching it I i won't mention his name uh uh Tip of my hat to you. So, you know, sometimes when you sit on a plane, I was returning from Florida. You're tired. Even though I'm a very, you know, I'm a, I'm a big conversational. Sometimes you just want to kind of whatever. You, you just want to yeah. watch a movie. You don't want to chat. So the guy sits next to me, introduces himself, asks me if I speak French or English. I said both. He goes, ah, oh, you must be a good Montrealer. And and the first thought I thought I had was, okay, this this guy is going to be a chatterbox. He's going to, you know, I'm screwed. But then I said, you know what, that that's not me. I'm not that guy. You know, I'm the guy who's open. And so I, I, instead of sort of retreating into my, my shell, I opened up, I ended up having the most delicious, you know, three and a half hour conversation. He's a young guy, 26 years old, also of Lebanese origin, just such a delightful guy. You know, we ended up then DMing on Instagram and, had I not had that openness, the, the hope of meeting the next really nice person, had I been closed off, I would have cheated myself out of this beautiful exchange. What are your thoughts on that little snippet I, of a story?
1: I'll tell you something that's parallel, which I, 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 this is something that's very central to my, I love having a bad meal at a restaurant because when it reaches a point where it's almost like a cartoon, it becomes a great, great story, right? So first they sit you late. Okay, that happens (coughs) a lot of restaurants. Then they get your order wrong. Then the food is terrible and the waiter's an asshole. Each of these in and of itself shouldn't be happening. But the fact that they're stacked like Jenga, like how is this possible? So it almost becomes like the Truman Show, right? So, okay, if the worst thing that happens to me today is that I went to a restaurant and I had a shitty meal, I'm in paradise. Right. Like if this is really the extent of my problems that like, oh, the restaurant, the food wasn't so good and I had to go get a pizza. I mean, my God, it like what blessed life I have that, you know, I have mediocre food. So I I think when you when you think of life as this almost absurd reality and bad things happen to you and you do have the perspective of like, how am I worse off now than I was for four hours ago? But yet I had this experience that I could share. Hey, and you share, especially if you had, share with someone, my friend, Steph, like, remember when we went to that sushi restaurant and right. blah, 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 And it's like, you know, just dominoes of just, just screw up, screw ups. That to me, it, but that's the other thing, God, if that guy on the plane was just an insufferable bore and he wouldn't show, shut up you'd be able to go on Twitter and be like, oh my God. And then that would make people, maybe it wasn't a fun experience for you, but your readers would be like laughing with you, some at you, but it would be fun for them to kind of vicariously be like, boy, I'm glad I wasn't on that plane. And you're like, I was ready to join Al Qaeda and storm that cockpit just to get this guy to shut up.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Uh, okay. So uh, be- before we delve into you know your analysis of the Soviet Union as relating to the to the white pill, uh, one sort of more general comment again. So you talk about good and evil as uh, you know the subtitle of the book, and you know I think I've heard you mention no. something. You know the good, the good guys, the good guys, right? Now I'm I'm hardly a relativist. I do believe that there are absolute truths, absolute moral standards. I I believe that there there's you know the ontological truth, right? It, you know you always should adhere to presumption of innocence in the legal system. That's a the, the ontological statement. But let me put on the relativist hat. How can we know what is good or evil in most cases? One man's, you know, freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. How do you address that issue in the book?
1: No, but I think it's very clear when children are being encouraged in school to report their parents to the authorities, even if they personally are killed, that is evil. I think when people are tortured to confess to crimes that they did not commit, that is clearly evil. I think when people are starved for political purposes, that is clearly evil. Um, and I think when people are sent to Siberia, uh perfectly innocent people where they are raped, uh, and and when they're when people in the village are complaining to the authorities and, and their reply is we're not trying to bring down the mortality rate, that is evil. So, you know, this isn't evil in the sense of, oh, I'm cheating on my wife. Or is it evil to cheat on your income taxes and not pay them? This is as clear-cut evil, uh, in my view, and I I don't think it's very ambiguous uh, as it gets.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm glad you said that because uh, in some of my recent uh, talks, even now, just when I came back from Florida, I was giving a talk at uh, an event organized by the Global Liberty Institute, uh, founded by two guys from Stanford. Uh, The title of my talk was Deontological Truth, Versus consequentialist activism. And the idea here again is the tension between deontology versus consequentialism. For many things, we put on a consequentialist hat. So, to, to use an example of, you know, you were mentioning cheating on your wife. It, you know, if your spouse asks you, do I look fat in those jeans? Sure. Well, then you can be consequentialist and, and, and lie and say, no, you've never looked more beautiful because you're, you've protected uh, their feelings. you've 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 maintained the integrity of your marriage so it might make sense to be consequentialist on the other hand there are fundamental first principles that have to be deontological and that's one of the things that I've regretted so much can I say something quickly
1: just tell her honey you don't look fat you look accurate (laughs) well (laughs) that that'll that's what she wants to hear
0: yeah right right uh hey listen i've been married 23 years now so i i must be doing something right because to to be able to navigate through some of these minefields <laughs> it takes a lot of acuity uh but so but my my point is that uh, as relating to many of the current events we're seeing some of uh i don't know if there are common friends but some of the people that i historically had, held, had had held them in high esteem i no longer do because i would have thought that they were very calibrated in terms of their moral compass, but they all became consequentialists on matters that should have been deontological, right? Sure, I believe in journalistic integrity and journalistic truth, but not when it comes to Hunter Biden's laptop. It made perfect sense for everybody to, sure. to suppress it because otherwise Orange Himmler would have come to power. What are your thoughts on this issue? And you know, uh, do, do you share my sentiment that it's grotesque to violate these kinds of deontological principles?
1: Um, I don't know that I share it entirely because I think neither of us are privy to what um, pressures people in power often are, right? So what might seem obvious on the outside, it's like, okay, you know, is it better for me to get reelected and get 50% of what I want as opposed to taking a firm stand and guaranteed to lose reelection and someone awful comes in, right? I don't have a good answer for that at all. but I and the, you know, the people on the cover, uh, uh, Thatcher, Rand, and Goldman, none of them are angels. Uh, there's certain major flaws, uh, I can point to with all of them. And Thatcher's a, you know, a great example. The idea of Margaret Thatcher is, you know, far better than the reality. But, you know, on the back cover, it says, you know, Once Upon a Time. So there is this kind of fairy tale aspect to the, to kind of my approach of the book that because this is, there's almost kind of a mythology because they are dealing. Uh, with what I regard as almost pure evil, you know, you know the, the totalitarian communism, uh, and as I sh- one of the things that kind of um, is humorous to me, you know, as an anarchist, people are like, oh, you're so naive, you think people are basically good, and you know, two thirds of this book shows what human beings are capable of, and it's not basically good. It's just the, the depravity is is something that we in the Westerners, we in the West, excuse me, are completely oblivious to. And naive too. And it starts with Ayn Rand testifying in 1948, I believe, in the House and American Activities Committee. And she's very frustrated. And she tells the congressman, because the congressman was like, you paint this dismal picture of Russia, you know, don't they smile? And he goes, doesn't anyone smile in Russia anymore? And he goes, look, it's almost impossible for me to explain what it's like for free people to live in a totalitarian dictatorship. She's like, in a way, it's good that you can't even imagine what it's like. She's like, sure, they have friends and mothers-in-law. They try to live a human life, but you understand it's totally inhuman. Try to imagine what it's like to live in constant terror from morning till night. And at night, you're waiting for the doorbell to ring, where you don't know who or what is going to do what to you, where you have friends who might spy on you, where there's no law, no rights of any kind. And the big part of this book is trying to explain to those of us who are very privileged, I'm using this word in the correct sense, in the west to have what liberties we have to try to imagine as best we can what it's like to live in a country where the oppression is so pervasive it's 24 7. and you know like if you hate trump or if you hate wokeism you can watch sports you can read an old novel you can listen to music you know there's so many outlets to escape it you know despite elements or trying to make it everywhere they did not have that everything from morning till night, your entire life is through the filter of this ideology. And, you know, my closest analog was when I spent a week in North Korea. Yeah. And it's impossible for me to explain until you've been there, what it's like when your entire environment is consumed by an alien ideology. It It's it, it, it just... Even if I just tried to explain to you what it's like to be for me to be in this room, it would take me weeks. Right. You know, because there's just so many aspects to it, the air, the you know, so it's it's the best I could to give people an understanding of just how bad things can get.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned North Korea, because as you were speaking about, you know, what the, the reality in this in the former Soviet Union, I was just going to mention that I just had Yunmi Park. Uh, on my show who you know who for those of you who are listening or watching who don't know who she is check out her recent most recent book she's a north korean defector well, where she
1: doesn't thank me in the credits and i called her out on this on my show she lists a bunch of freedom fighters none of whom had written a book about it or been there so i put her on blast
0: <laughs> as i would expect michael malice to do shameless there you go uh all right so uh, you You focused on the Soviet Union, and I get that. but can you are there some general, you know mechanisms or phenomena that we could take from the white pill that you could say, well, here are, you know, thirteen other examples that speak to the exact same phenomenon?
1: No, because I can't think of any other uh, um situation where an edifice that was maybe I'm not a historian in the sense of like, you know, pre-modern history where an edifice that was, A, so evil in its nature and so powerful and had been around for so long, and it was a given that it was eternal and not going anywhere, uh, fell so hard so fast that it's effectively vanished from history. Uh, One of the reasons I wrote this book is this happened in our lifetime. This was in 89 through 91, and no one even knows this story, and it was the absolute number one foreign policy issue for decades in the West. There was no, I don't, number two would probably be the Middle East, but everything, it was a given that there's two superpowers. Uh, you know, all the Western leaders were told, all right, you have to work within this framework. They're not going anywhere. This, we tried the Korean war, that was a draw. Vietnam, we got our asses handed to us. You have to accept that they're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We have to find a way to work together. And at a certain point, some people said, you know, F that uh, this is not, I'm not. And they were right. And it, it uh, they, my one of my favorite stories in this book was Helmut Kohl, who was the head of West Germany, was sitting with Lech Walesa in Poland after Poland had uh, overthrown peacefully uh, the communist regime. And uh, Lech Walesa is like, you know what? I don't think the Berlin Wall is going to be around for much longer. And Helmut Kohl laughs in his face. Uh, he's like, oh, it might be a matter of months, I think he said, or something. It laughs in his face, and it goes, "Listen, you're young, you don't understand how these things work." You know, blah blah blah. It fell the next day, <laughs> and Nicole literally said, "I'm at the wrong party," and got on a, got his ass on a plane from Warsaw uh, to Germany. So the when I am, I'm both hopeful and optimistic. But one of the reasons I'm optimistic is because people constantly insist. Oh, it can never change, uh, you know. Or these changes are going to be glacial. And this is my book of receipts of how these changed changes happened very, very quickly, very, very dramatically, and especially in the face of many very bright the experts telling you this is not going anywhere. And realism, realism is accepting that this is we have to work within this framework, and the base uh, premises are not open to discussion.
0: And that is exactly incorrect. So maybe I could, thank you for that answer. Uh, To answer the question that I pose you, can we take some phenomena from this book and apply them to other contexts? Do you mind if I take a shot at answering that question? So one of the things that I I think you cover in your book but others have talked about, I mean, think about say the useful idiots and so on. Uh, I mean, in the Soviet Union context of that term, Uh, The idea that no matter what evidence you would show the Westerner who was sympathetic to the Soviet Union, it wouldn't be enough to alter their opinion, right? So what I'd like to do, uh, Michael, to speak about the universality of the impossibility of getting people to change their opinion, irrespective of the amount of evidence that I might show you to the contrary, I'd like to read you a quote. So bear with me. It's a bit long. It's not my quote, but it's from uh, – in, so in Chapter 7 of, of my book, The Parasitic Mind, I talk about, you know, how to seek truth. And, of course, what I argue there is that the only way that what I'm about to discuss with you next makes sense is if you don't do the la-la-la-la-la, I'm never going to change my opinion. Because if you do that, then there's – you're no impenetrable. I, you're unassailable. I cannot get you. So watch this brilliant quote, Michael, from Leon Festinger, who is the uh, – the pioneer who created the theory of cognitive dissonance. Okay, so you ready? So, so again, bear with me. It's about you know a couple of paragraphs long. So this is Leon Festinger. A man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree, and he turns away. Show him facts or figures. And he questions your sources appeal to logic. And he fails to see your point. We have all experienced the futility of trying to change a strong conviction, especially if the convinced person has some investment in his belief. We are familiar with the variety of ingenious defenses with which people protect their convictions, managing to keep them unscathed through the most devastating attacks. But man's resourcefulness goes beyond simply protecting a belief. Suppose an individual believes something with his whole heart. Suppose further that he has a commitment to this belief, that he has taken irrevocable actions because of it. Finally, suppose that he is presented with evidence, unequivocal and undeniable evidence that his belief is wrong. What will happen? The individual will frequently emerge not only unshaken but even more convinced of the truth of his beliefs than ever before indeed he may even show a new fervor about convincing and converting other people to his view is that one of the most unbelievable I mean it it perfectly explains everything including how westerners reacted to the soviet union's utopia
1: well, also, well, a couple of things. First of all, you're talking about deontological versus consequentialist. One of the chapters in this book, I, f- I found an old book from, I think, 38, 41, I remember what it was, 39, uh, called Terror in Russia, question mark. And it was a debate between Upton Sinclair and Eugene Lyons. Upton Sinclair was a big socialist. Uh, he was a big leftist intellectual leader. And he acknowledged that Stalin starved Ukrainians. And he first of all, he goes and this is when I saw this in writing, I I was my jaw almost dropped that he'd be this kind of explicit about his depravity. He goes, well, they say it's five million, but I I think the number is closer to one million where he gets that from. He doesn't say. But obviously, it's a lot easier to hand wave away a million people. And he goes, but you have to look at it this way. They solved the problem of famine forever. So I, which is a lie. But. The idea, talk about consequentialism. It's like, sure, they're not starving, but we sure we killed a million people intentionally, okay. but we starved as if the only way, God, of solving the problem of famine is by killing a million people. What if more imports? <laughs> you know, I, I, there's so many other ways to, but so it's kind of shocking uh, uh, um, to see that. To what that quote you just read, um, I think that it's impossible for anyone to have political discussions uh, without having read Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, right, because to me, unless you read that book, there's really no talking to you, because he doesn't have a political perspective himself that he addressed in the book, but what he demonstrates through his research is that humans have a visceral immediate moral conclusion. And then the rational brain fills in the blanks afterwards and finds what is often a rationalization. And to the point where they will literally rewrite the question in order to force the result that they want. And the example he uses is, let's suppose there's a brother and sister, genetic brother and sister, and they decide to have intercourse once, right? And they use protection and nothing happens and they have a nice time and they never do it again. Is this morally wrong? And people say yes. And when he asked them to explain why, they'll say things like well what if they have deformed kids well there is no what if cuz we know the premises of the question but the people will, or he's another one is like is it a woman wants to clean her toilet the only thing she has around her house is an american flag you know she uses it a rag is that morally wrong people say no or yes but when they say why they are flabbergasted so the fact that we have our answers but we don't have a reasoning is a reversal of how people think they think. And this is also why it's often such a waste of time. And I I'll, I never, almost never engage in political discourse like on social media or on Twitter, because first of all, to explain these concepts to 280 characters is almost impossible. Second, I've explained them elsewhere. So if you were genuinely interested, you could do that five minutes of reading of something I've written. And third, and this speaks to evolutionary psychology, you, the person I'm addressing, are getting off by defying me because you think I need your approval or conversion. And now you have a sense of power by being, being like you can't persuade me of anything. So you're up here and now I'm down here and it gives you a sense of status. So for all these reasons and to to what you just read uh, you know, I think the political discussion on Twitter is uh, almost always a waste of personal time.
0: But in a sense it speaks to our, earlier you know conversation about hope and the white pill because if you if you internalize fully the quote that i just read and then i'm going to add a second dimension so in, in that chapter i also talk about uh, a fantastic theory called theory of uh, argumentation by uh, sperber and mercier who are two uh, french psychologists where they argue that the capa- the human capacity to reason did not evolve to seek truth but to win arguments. Right? Oh so, wow, yeah. Right? And so so now I'm sitting back I'm saying, well, I'm going to offer you an epistemological toolbox that hopefully can can help you get to truth because I believe that there is a knowable and discoverable truth as as would the scientific method. But then I read the quote by Festinger and then I read the theory of argumentation which says, guess what? We don't give a shit about truth. We give a shit about maintaining our cherished beliefs, then it's almost, then you oscillate between can I be hopeful and get you to seek truth or should I wave my hands and abject failure because I could never get you to change your opinion on anything consequential. And also, this is one of the reasons I
1: don't do debates. I'll have discussions. If there's a debate, there's a cost for me to change my mind or uh, concede your point. But if you and I are having a discussion and you're like, hey, what about A, B, and C? it cost me nothing to be like, oh, you know what? You changed my mind. That's a great perspective. So I I avoid debates like the plague. I did have one. I got my ass handed to me. So maybe that's part of it. But in, in all seriousness, like debates may be fun in terms of a performance for the audience. So maybe you and I could debate something we don't really care about cake versus pie, or, you know, just for the academic exercise, you know, we'll take positions, even though maybe both of us don't hold those. But in terms of things that, you know, you and I might really care about, I'd much rather sit down with you and listen and have you, when you point out flaws in my thinking, I'd rather be like, okay, this guy's my friend. He's bright. He's educated. He's not trying to harm me or humiliate me. Yeah. Like, let me grapple with
0: what he's saying and be yeah. perfectly happy to have my mind persuaded. Speaking of humiliation, I'm going back in my reel from about 50 minutes ago and how I said, Kim the second. I think this might become a forever internet meme. So thank you for that. I really, I truly do appreciate that. You uh, are welcome. <laughs> You're why, or oh, you are, of course. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, are there any, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are many, but what are some of the current events that are pissing you off the most? Of the panoply of possible ones, give me the top two, three, four, that you're waking up every morning at yeah you know, whatever it is what 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 are some of these
1: i don't really get that pissed off by current events because i think current events are often so uh like screwed up that and i have so little uh kind of the serenity prayer i have so little capacity to do anything about it that if i'm going to get upset by the news which is what they would want it's really going to mess my stuff up right mm. so i mean let me have some perspective. I wrote this book. I have a big audience, you know, it's paying my bills. This is every writer's utopia, right? This is the fantasy. Like I can write whatever I want. I will have a wide audience. I get to talk to people like you about it and promote it. Like it's all upside. So when that's the case, it's very hard for me to look at like something happening in Arizona and be be like, at the same time, I do think there is an enormous amount of you know uh evil and and depravity in our news so i know that it gets me upset um what am i currently upset about um i'm i'm heartened because i'll give you just this happened just yesterday in 2016 i think it was june i was the first one to start people talking about having national divorce be an issue i wrote an article for the observer and marjorie taylor green god bless her explicitly said we need to start talking about national divorce. So it's now part of the Overton window, even though it's on the fr- the far right fringe. The fact that, you know, in seven years, this has happened to me is enormously gratifying, but it's also gratifying to me, not that it's moving closer to what I want. It's gratifying that my hypothesis of how culture and ideas percolate through a culture has gotten more data to validate uh, my theory. So that were both just wonderful things. I, 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 it's hard for me to think of things in the news because I do believe that people who I'm opposed to are genuinely evil. So when evil people do evil things in the West, I, I think the last thing that really got me upset, like upset, was what they did with the Freedom Convoy. And I don't even know what they did with them.
0: But you, you, know, you know, sorry to interrupt you. It's funny that you say this uh, because I was, when I was in Florida, I met uh, a friend who uh, does have a big platform on YouTube. People can maybe put it all together. I won't mention his name, although I don't think he'd mind. Who who's now moved to Florida? And as we were having a coffee, uh, the news just had just dropped that the commission that was looking at whether it was okay for Justin Trudeau to invoke the Emergencies Act was 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 valid or not. And it came out that yes, he was in his right to do so. And he got so furious and angry. And he's someone who's very very jovial and happy and so on. And I I, I couldn't sort of you know, get them out of that anger. Uh, but that, in a sense, I, I wanted to link that to how you originally answered the question when you said, well, look, what's the point of me being angry about things that I can't change? As you probably know, and maybe some of our viewers know, that's the whole premise behind Stoic philosophy, right? So the idea is that which I have no control over, I should not obsess or, uh, or be ang- uh, you know, angry about because I can't do anything about it. Now, the, is that something that you learn because you internalize the stoicist message, or is this something that was inherently part of your mindset, which of course is a very healthy way to, to no, approach life? I
1: think hope has to be based on facts, right? And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because this is a story of hope, but it's based in reality. It's not me. Uh, I, hope doesn't mean, God forbid, you have some bad diagnosis, a doctor, and me telling you, oh, I'm sure it's going to be okay. That's not. That's ridiculous, because I'm not sure. I am sure that you'll be able to handle it, and that it might suck, but you're going to be able to get through it. And God forbid, we're all going to at some point we're not going to be able to handle it, and that's going to be okay too. You know, it's going to happen to all of us at some point. Hopefully, as later as possible for me and you, but you know, whatever. Um, Why I, I your friend and my friend as well? Why I think his so he has hope in in a misplaced way, and this is one of the reasons I'm an anarchist, right? to expect the government to find itself guilty of a brazen disregard for the law to the point where this is criminal. If I am invoking a law to imprison people illegally, then what does that make me? You know, at the very least a dictator, I should have criminal charges against myself to expect, because despite this American fantasy of the three branches of government, It's really one government, right? Right. Why would I, as a senator, approve a Supreme Court justice who's going to restrain my power? Why would I, as a president, nominate a Supreme Court justice who's going to take away my my power? I'm not going to want to do that. So the hoops are there to make sure the government's power is as absolute as possible, as culturally allowable. So to expect this kind of uh, um, Canadian and the ju- the thing is the judges are themselves up against the wall because now it's going to be a massive showdown between the judiciary and the executive. Judges don't need these headaches; they're not political actors in the same way as politicians. So hope to me doesn't mean every in every context. There are certain contexts, like for example, a lot of these conservatives when we had the midterms, you know, and and the Republicans red waved not manifest and they thought it was the end of the world. I'm like, listen, if your vision of hope. Is for having Mitch McConnell be Senate majority leader, pack it in because you're that's that's delusional, right? So hope has to be within a rational context based on historical data and, and things that are realistic and an understanding of the factors involved. Um, so I I would think this is a good example of how hope <coughs> does lead to cynicism because if you keep hoping that people who have no incentive to act correctly, uh and, and who are genuinely malevolent people are going to act correctly. It's it's you're really setting yourself up.
0: I'm wondering. I mean, you mentioned in your in your last response, uh, you you referred again to anarchism. I I know of a lot of the uh, psychological and political psychological research uh, comparing uh, on various metrics. You know, conservatives to to liberals. You know, so for example, in my next book, my forthcoming book, I talk about the fact that much of the research shows that on average conservatives tend to be happier than liberals. And I offer, I, I think an intriguing theory for it. But do you are you aware of any research that has looked at the unique personality traits of anarchists? And if 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 not, if it hasn't been done, boy, that would be a cool project. I'm not sure if I would take it on, but that would be a really cool thing to study. I would bet we're extremely high on openness and extremely low on agreeableness. <laughs> that what could you could you I mean I I think I can I can surmise what what you're saying but maybe just explain it to the viewers why no, you think things so.
1: meaning very very open minded interested in learning new things new people non judgmental in that sense right at the same time when people feel comfortable to assert authority over you and control your life to have absolutely no time for that at all and you this is obviously much more your purview than mine doesn't that kind of correspond to
0: what you would suspect would be the answer. I mean yeah that's intuitively as a as if you know first level uh hypothesis its it passes what's called face validity, so that seems to make sense, but I'd be curious, maybe I'll go back later and check i'll do, I'll do a quick google search google. or just give me a give me a test and i'll I'll take it and i you have been, I, i'm, pro- oh, I'm that's probably true. I'm probably
1: indicative of a, a fairly large okay. population of antigus also we're going to be low on traditional i i think it
0: is going to be low right it, what about so one of the first because I'm as as we were talking, I'm thinking, well, what would be the personality traits that I think would be most discriminating in terms of whether you are an anarchist or not? And so the first one that popped to mind is something uh, by Rotter. You know, you, you probably heard the 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 the, the psychometric scale, uh, internal versus external locus of control. So it's all
1: going to be internal,
0: entirely yeah, internal. Yeah, that, that okay? There you go. So. I, G- government is external they you know, right govern me harder daddy and therefore yeah. if i'm external attribution oriented then i want more intrusion from the government but when you know whether i succeed or not is due to my own doing i yeah, so that's exactly what right. so my prediction would probably be that out of the i mean there literally is michael you know over 10000 personality traits that have been identified and measured I would bet that one of the ones that best describes whether I belong to the anarchist camp or not is internal, external. Do you agree?
1: Yeah. And when I was in college, I did take that test and I was 100% internal.
0: There you go. There you go. Now, are you, uh, I I, I don't think you'd mind answering that. Are you, you're an atheist, are you? No. Oh, you're not an atheist. Okay. Tell me about that. Well, what do you want me to tell you? No, I mean, uh, you know, have you, have you always been religious? Has it, I'm not religious. has a fluctuate? Okay, so you believe that there is a, a a power, it's not necessarily linked to a organized specific religion, but right. there is some someone that is somehow pulling the string and so on.
1: And, and I've had enough evidence to it, but the point is this is the sort of thing where this is evidence is, you know, how would you prove to me that you love your wife, right? Like that you can't prove it to me, but you certainly have enough evidence and lived experience to have it without a shadow of doubt in your mind. Uh, I don't have it to the point of your love for your wife. But it's certainly uh, um, something that I have enough information from my personal experience that, again, it's impossible to um, share with other people without having any semblance of coherence. You, you, can I tell you
0: something? I I would no. have bet the house that uh, you would have been an atheist. I'm not exactly sure why I would have thought that, but sometimes we we kind of use these you know fast and frugal heuristics to 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 compartmentalize people and i'm genuinely surprised by your answer yeah, I, I get hear.
1: i get it a lot on social media people make that assumption right. um and it's uh it, i'm not it's i'm not it's not a um a, a surprising assumption I, I don't think at all or conclusion rather um but, but the answer is no and it's uh yeah
0: yeah it's funny i just got i i tweeted about this i was just asked to participate in an ontology uh, like a tome uh by you know all sorts of you know well-known people in, in business medicine academia politics about you know give me 500 words why uh you know you believe that there's a god and so on and then i i was kind of having a difficult time because i wanted to reply in a polite way but to to basically question their premise which or their assumption that i believed in god and so i ended up writing i'm not much of a believer although as you know michael i'm very much jewish in my identity but i'm not much of a Believer in a creator, and so I think I found earlier today the right polite, uh, you know, cadence in, in terms of how I answer them. So I said, basically, I would have loved to oblige your request, but uh, I can't, unfortunately, because of XYZ. So there you go. All right, are there any projects that you are currently working on beyond the one that just came out, the White Pill, that you'd like to use this uh platform to promote? Take it away.
1: Uh, I will tell you the next my next book idea when we're off camera just to drive the audience crazy and when i tell it to you you are going to be ecstatic at the idea and you're going to think this is the best thing since sliced bread i guarantee it
0: so i'm almost can know what it is uh is the book titled the Eleven Thousand reasons why gad sad should be the hero of every single human being on earth is that the book am i right
1: (laughs) yeah available now at blockbuster (laughs)
0: is, <laughs> by the way, I was being humble in stating rent, 11000 rent, rent, rent the movie when it comes out. <laughs> rent the movie and then watch it at the discotheque. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Michael, stay on the line so that we can officially say all our sweet things off camera. Thank you so much for coming on. And of course, you're you're welcome to return any anytime you'd like.
1: I'll, you know what we should do? We should have you give me that test to find out what those personality metrics are. I think it'd be a lot of fun for the viewers to do. An and then we can like sort
0: that. of reveal the answers. on Let's, air do, in the live let's do the
1: test live on
0: air. All right, let's-, let's That let might be
1: deal. a lot of fun, I think. For, we could both answer them.
0: There you go. And, and one of us might lie if it makes them look bad. <laughs> that would be you. <laughs> <laughs> nice talking to you, Michael. Stay sure. on the line. Cheers.